Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 58. We'll begin with a brief summation of chapters 4 through 7 in the book of Judges and follow with a consideration of biblical girl power. So, let's give the cycle its fourth spin, shall we? Getting sick of the ups and downs and rounds and rounds yet? Patience. Patience, my love. This iteration has some more to consider, and the protagonist is a woman. Actually, the protagonists are are two women. So, the fat and contented Jews screw things up. Come on! And God, quote, handed them over to Yavin, king of Canaan, which begs the question, there's a king of Canaan? How much of Canaan remained free after the initial conquest? Oh, well, never mind. Yavin sits in Chatzor, and his general Sisra really sticks it to the Jews with their 900 iron chariots, and the oppression goes on for 20 years. Uh, dear God, was that necessary? But Devorah, an Ephraimite, is a prophet and a judge, and she calls for Barak ben Avinoam from Naphtali and tells him that it's time to overthrow Canaanite rule. She tells him how many men to muster and from where and the basic strategy to assure victory. Barak replies, quote, If you go with me, I will go, and if you do not go with me, I will not go. And so it's on. And Sisera obliges by mustering his troops and chariots and marching into the Kishon Valley while Barak and his boys wait for them on the mountainside at Mount Tavor. Pinned in the valley, the Jews rout the Canaanites, but Sisera flees on foot. He finds himself at the tent door of Yael the Canaanite. The Canaanites, it seems, have friendly relations with the Canaanites, so when Yael invites Sisera into the tent, he has two reasons not to fear. The second is that she's a woman. Come on, what's she going to do? But she does indeed. She agrees to hide him, to lead pursuers astray, and she gives him milk and covers him, and soon Sisera falls asleep. Yael then takes a tent stake and a hammer and makes her point. When Barak arrives in hot pursuit, Yael shows him her handiwork. The Jews carry the day and overthrow Canaanite rule, which inspires Devorah to sing a song of victory. First things first, I'm the realest. realest. Drop this and let the whole world feel it. And quote, Thus perish all your enemies, O Lord, and be his friends like the sun coming out in its might. But don't think we're done here. Get ready for spin number five, which finds the Jews subject to Midianite oppression seven years, and the Amalekites and the sons of the east join in and... Okay, perhaps the Sons of the East are some kind of biblical biker gang. And the Amalekites, well, I thought we'd been finished with them from around whatever, but I guess not. But this time, the oppression is so severe, with marauders seizing the harvest every year that folks start hiding out in caves and tunnels. And when they call out to God for help, God sends a prophet who basically tells the Jews, And that, yes, help will come. And it does in the form of an angel who appears to Gidon ben Yoash, while Gidon was secretly threshing wheat so the Midianites wouldn't get their hands on his harvest. You can imagine Gidon's reaction when the angel tells him that, quote, the Lord is with you, valiant warrior. Gidon basically replies, Fuck off! Or in other words, if God is with us, why are our lives so terrible? God has clearly abandoned us. The angel is not put off. Quote, Go in this power of yours and rescue Israel from the grip of Midian. Have I not sent you? To this, Gidon has no real reply, so he changes the subject. He is the youngest son of the weakest clan in Menashe. We've heard this line before, and as before, God is not interested in excuses. But Gidon is still not convinced, so he says to God, If I bring you a sacrifice and you accept it, then I will know that what you're saying isn't just plain old stuff and nonsense. So he runs home and throws together some goat meat, broth, and yeastless bread, and returns. 
Gidon is told to put his offering on a rock, at which point the angel touches the meat and bread with the tip of his staff, and fire erupts from the rock and engulfs the offering. Gidon is convinced, and he falls on his face. God assures him that nothing bad will happen to him, but he has to get ready for war, but before then he has to create some buzz around the impending uprising. He is to take a bull, and after smashing his father's stone altar to Baal and cutting down the Asherah pole beside it, he is to use the materials to construct a proper slaughter site to God and make a proper offering. Gidon realizes that doing so in broad daylight might would probably get him lynched, so he smashes, builds, and near offers in the middle of the night. The next morning, the townsfolk of his hometown see a new slaughter site made up of the two old ones, and they are pissed. After some investigation, they discover that Gidon did the deed and send a posse over to deal with him. But Gidon's father, Yor, says, if, if Baal is such a big bad god, then let him fight his own battles, at which point Gidon adopts his Wu-Tang name, Yeru Baal, or Baal Fighter. Gidon masses his troops, as do the Midianites. His fellow Manashaites come out to fight, as well as men from Asher, Zvulun, and Naphtali, but even then he is not so sure he can win. After a series of miracles-slash-tests that Gidon poses to God, he is convinced that he will win, but God now has a test for Gidon. You have too many men, God says. We don't want people to think that your victory was a function of superior numbers. So chapter 7 finds Gidon weeding out his force of 32,000 troops, sending home the fearful rookies, then conducting the famous water test on the remainder. The test was a simple one. When invited to drink from a stream, if you kneel and cup the water, you're out. But if you lay on your stomach and lap the water with your tongue, then you stay. Only 300 men remain. This is Sparta! The night before the big battle, Gidon is terrified. Even though God promised victory, Gidon cannot possibly pull off a win with only 300 men. God appears once again and says, Look, if you don't think you can win, why not sneak into the enemy camp and hear how they're feeling? So Gidon, sure of an imminent defeat, takes his aide to camp and heads over to the Midianite side. There he hears a Midianite telling his mate about a dream he had, about a giant loaf of barley rolling down the hillside and knocking over tents with reckless abandon. His friend, dropping some mad oneromancy skills, says, So Gidon runs back to the camp and divides his force into three and instructs each man to take a jar, shofar, and torch. The charge is to be simultaneous from three directions and include blowing the shofar, smashing the jar, and the shout, quote, sword for the Lord and for Gidon. And in the mass hysteria that follows in the Midianite camp, Midianites draw swords and kill each other as they flee into the night. Gidon's men follow in hot pursuit, and when the dust settles, the Midianites are sent back across the Jordan. Thus endeth the summation. And beginneth the consideration with our guest, provocateur, and rabbinic trickster, Karen Aviv. Welcome to Tanakhcast, Karen Aviv. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. I'm really happy to be here. Well, good. Thanks. So, what do you want to talk about? You, 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 you picked a really juicy portion with two strong female protagonists. Yeah, I think I want to talk about how these uh, characters, Deborah and Yael, are totally out of the box in terms of stereotypical female roles in Tanakh. And the other thing I want to talk about is, um, should they be role models or should they be just simply recognized as aberrations? Uh, for women in Tanakh. And the other thing I want to talk about is the whole question of the victim, villain, hero, bystander, four square, which um, depending on how you turn that square, who's the victim, who's the villain, who's the hero, 
mm-hmm. who's the standard. So I think we've got enough juicy stuff to talk about for 15 minutes. Well, if you, you can also talk for 18 minutes if you like. It's not, it's okay, not, you're, not you're not limited. Oh, okay. I thought there was like a bandwidth issue. Oh no, it's it, there's no there's no limit. As you heard from previous episodes, we could go on for an hour if you like, but my gosh, no, I have to make dinner for my child. So there you go. So so okay. domesticity, you know, beckons ruins everything intellectual. It's the brain. Uh, it is a lot of women. <laughs> <laughs> to be the default parent, yeah, it is. It is. Right. So Devorah and Yael are, um, for those of us who've just tuned in, Devorah is a judge and Yael is, I guess, just a woman, a, a homemaker. She's the wife of Heber the Canite. And Heber we know nothing about. And Yael we actually know very little about as well. We just know that she has access to tent pins and she's not afraid to use them. <laughs> So let's talk about Devorah first. So what's what's your take on Devorah? As, as you know, she's like anomalous because she's the only female judge, right? So a couple different translations say that she's a judge, and a couple different translations call her a prophet. But what's interesting is that we don't see her doing any kind of judging, and we don't see her doing any kind of prophesizing. We only see her acting decisively about pending military action and ordering her husband Barak around and then accompanying him to battle and rejoicing when they defeat the army of Sisra and also um, find out that he's killed. Yeah. So it's weird. She's, uh, she's an anomaly in the Torah for sure in her uh, role and stature in Israelite society, but she's also surprisingly decisive and not afraid to uh, command a military action. And uh, what's also really interesting is that there's a parallel between her and Miriam uh, with the Shirat Hayam, the Song of the Sea, mm-hmm. where there's this really intense, dramatic episode that uh, precedes uh, a joyous, triumphant song where everybody busts out and they're singing and they're dancing and they are glorying in Hashem and it's all good. Um, but the outcomes of both of those stories in Bishalach and in, in Judges, um, somebody loses, somebody dies, and the Israelites in both cases are pretty psyched about that. And it's actually a conundrum for the rabbinic midrash of how should we read this and should we also celebrate in the glory of the Israelites at the expense of the people who died or should we take a more nuanced approach? Well, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's look at, let's take a more nuanced approach. All right, let's do the nuance. I'm down with that. How do you want to spin it? Well, you know, there, the, the, if you look at the, the, the cycle of, of strife, as I call it in the book of judges, basically, we have this, you know, the wheel keeps turning and the people keep behaving the way they behave, which brings on the wrath of God. And then the judge has to come and save them. And, and, and they buy. never learn. They never learn. And, and the thing is that they they buy themselves some time each each time the wheel turns. I mean, yes, they may suffer 7, 10, 20 years of oppression, but then they get 40 years of peace, which... Sounds familiar. Yeah. Which, <laughs> <laughs> We're not going there. No. We're not- 
going there. We're not touching that with a okay, 30-foot extendable pole. Fine, no problem. I'm with you on that. You know, it, she's, she's a very curious character, I, mean, I think. Um, because, I mean, she, she doesn't really participate. She's kind of passive in a way. No? I disagree. I actually think she's pretty decisive. She commands Barak. There's this whole debate amongst biblical scholars about whether uh, Devorah and Barak were married. It kind of makes it juicier if you argue in favor of that line of thinking that they were married because then she's clearly driving the bus or driving the chariot, Mm -hmm. as it were, um, in that marriage. And she uh, basically says, fine, I'll go with you when you cry like a crybaby that you don't want to go to war alone. And you never see that in the Torah. I mean, I can't think of any other example of a relationship between a husband and a wife in Tanakh where there's this back and forth and there's this negotiating where the woman is clearly driving the action and also where the husband is compliant and obedient, but ultimately charged with the responsibility of going to war. So that that to me is a little interesting. And the other thing is that she is clearly the speaker in Judges 5 with the war song, this triumphant narrative about uh, winning and and also taunting Sisera's mother at the very end of Judges 5. That's um, here. Let me let me go get it where it's in first person in the text, and then it turns to uh, making fun of the mom and uh, really taunting her and saying, Hell, you're so sad, and sister's chariot is so long in coming, and uh, he's going to perish. And she also switches, or the narrator switches the the ending or the demise of mm-hmm. Sisera. Which I also think, I mean, I can't attribute that to Deborah if we're, if we're just focusing on Dora right now. But in Judges 4, Yael clearly kills him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in Judges 5, uh, the story changes. And it's more about him uh, struggling with her and that he sinks and he falls and he falls down dead where there's no hint of struggle in Judges 4. He's just asleep, and then he's dead. So lots of good, juicy stuff. The other thing I want to talk about is Yael. Who is she? What is her deal? What do you know about her? Well, there's there's, there's the whole uh, issue of, you know, who exactly is left in Canaan after the conquest? Like, there's a lot of different accounts about, you know, was was it ethnic cleansed? Or were there, you know, they say there is then like in the, in the subsequent chapter there are like local people hanging out or they say there was this big war and there's a big victory but there are certain pockets of territory that they never managed to conquer right. so i mean I, th- I think they talk about yael as being like the, the, the canites or something that they were the descendant of uh of of the moses I'm not sure. What I read in the Jewish, the JPS study Bible is that there's this debate of whether the Canaanites were allies of Sisera or they were allies of the Israelites. And so Yael, as the wife of this guy, Heber, um, she's this ambiguous figure. We don't know whether she's an ally or an enemy. Is she 
Um, is she victimized by the Israelites or is she, is she the villain of this story? We don't know anything. And she never really speaks. She simply says, she simply gives him milk right, and then kills him. So what her motivation might be for doing this unclear because there's no backstory about whether or not she knows Devorah. Does she know the Israelites? Is she friends with Barack? Do they have coffee at Starbucks? We don't know. Yeah. And, uh, and it's just kind of this striking, extraordinary, and in some ways potentially unwarranted act of violence because we don't know what her politics are. So we clearly know what Devorah's politics are. And so in that regard, she's clearly positioned as a hero in this narrative. Mm -hmm. But, but Yael, uh, unclear. What would you think? Do you think that she's... Um, do you think she's a victim? Do you think she's a villain? And in that regard, I'm using Tikva Freimer-Kensky's uh, uh, Yeah, just, well, that four square comes from other stuff, but but Tikva wrote a great book about women in Tanakh using this idea of victims, villains, harlots, uh, bystanders, and also just the silenced, the voiceless. Right. And she is sort of voiceless, but she's, well, she definitely has a cameo appearance here. I mean, the, the, she appears, she does her hammering, and then she's gone. We never hear from her ever again. Yeah. So, and, and so like, does she assist in any kind of battle with Barak? Well, I mean, uh, I guess the, you know, Devorah alludes to her cryptically. Mm-hmm. Because she says in, in chapter four in verse nine that, you know, after there's the whole whinging thing about, come on, like, can, you, can you come with me to fight? Are you coming? I'm not going without you. Yeah. And then suddenly she says, I'll, I'll go with you. And, 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 but, but you're not going to get any of the credit because the Lord will, will give Sisera over to the hand of a woman. Right. And it turns out to not be Deborah, unless we do a midrashic spin. Bear with me. What if we were to rewrite this narrative and Devorah somehow disguises herself, leaves the camp, and she shows up in the tent, and Devorah and Yael are, in fact, the same character. Huh. That'll be an interesting little little spin on that. Considering that there is really nothing else about... I mean, I mean we know that, like I said, Yael's uh, family are descended down from Moses' father-in-law, from, from Yitro. Yeah. So that there's that connection. But beyond that, I mean, your guess is as good as mine, really. Also, if we were to pursue that line of thinking, just midrashically, if Devorah were indeed Yael, then it would make more sense that Devorah in Judges 5 would reframe Sisera's demise and characterize it as a struggle, because that implies that there maybe was some revelation, like maybe Sisera realized that it was Devorah, and struggled or somehow like there was a recognition there was a moment mm -hmm. um, and that makes it all the more dramatic that devora yael fights back i'm just being creative here well i mean th this moment you know where, where devora cryptically says about the, that that cicero will fall into the hands of a woman reminded me of like that moment in in in, in lord of the rings you know mm -hmm. where where um the nazgul says you know i will no I, no man can kill me Mm -hmm. And it turns out that it's Eowyn, a woman, who kills him. Right. Right. You know, it's uh, it's funny that we're talking about Devorah now and we're, like, 
right at the beginning of the Genesis cycle with all of these um, manipulative moms and all of this reproductive competition. I'm completely taking a left turn here, mm -hmm. but I'm just thinking like, who could you compare Devorah to in terms of, if not maternal figures, because we don't know if she actually was maternal. We have no idea what her reproductive career was, but in Genesis, you have so many strong female leads, but they are subdued by the patriarchy or sub or they're somehow subordinate and competing with other women in this text Yael and Devorah don't necessarily compete with one another but they don't really intersect in the story there's no moment of meeting like there are many moments of meeting between Sarai and Hagar and, mm -hmm. and all of the other uh, maternal ancestors and uh and it's also super direct, like Devorah's action and Yael's action. There's no manipulation involved. There's right, no right. subterfuge. There's no like insisting that Yaakov like gets in the drag to steal the birthright. Mm -hmm. There's no machinations. It's just decisive action. And, you know, on the one hand, it's pretty refreshing. Like I think that both Devorah and Yael could be read as badasses. Can I say that? Um, you can say whatever you like. Okay. Um, and on the other hand, are they role models? Like to think about for a contemporary, you know, feminist analysis? Not so sure. Why what not? do you think? Why not? Uh, well, you know, I, I tend to think of myself as um, leaning on the side of nonviolence in communication and action. And I think there are benefits to embracing nonviolence, not in every situation, for sure. And if we touch the Middle East, but we're not, not necessarily in certain cases, but um, really depends on your perspective. Uh, I, I just, um, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to emulate Devorah and Yael in their strategic use of violence for specific purposes. On the other hand, I think they're pretty awesome. Like they really nail it, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that you know this was definitely not a war of uh, you know milchamet shoot. This was not like a uh, optional war that they engaged in. The, the, the fact is that they were they were being oppressed by mm -hmm. Sisera and company. You know that they that so much so like. In, in, not in this iteration, but I mean every iteration of this cycle of strife, depending on where you start the story, uh -huh. th there's oppression there. Like they're they're fighting, you know, to be liberated, to be free. Yeah. So you that the methods they used to pursue that outcome were just. Well, I think that um, there was no UN to go to to complain about. You know, treat, treatment this way or that way. Um, in a way that this this punishment, the, the the people that sort of provide the that play the role of villain in these stories mm -hmm. are are essentially props in a divine melodrama. Right? Yeah, and yeah. They're, and, they're, and they're and they're actually almost interchangeable. Like you know, this time it's the Plishtim, the next time it's Moab, the next time it's Ammon, the next time it's Kushan Rishatayim from Aram Naharaim. You know, like yeah, and they're pretty flat. Like we have no sense of complexity about why why these people are villains. 
Um, we have no detailing of what their crimes are against the Israelites. Well, it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's statesmanship, right? It's like, you know, I'm a king of a city-state and I need to expand my, you know, borders or expand my you know, access to resources. And there's a weaker polity next door that I can, you know, oppress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, I'm not sure what to make of this. I, I don't read this as... Um, I, I take the approach that this is historical fiction. I'm more of a a literary, I take a literary perspective on this text and all of these narratives about in Judges. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't see this as recording accurate depictions of history. Absolutely. Certainly the writers and the redactors had strategic purposes for um, amplifying certain themes that might have highlighted their own particular struggles in that historical era that they were writing. But I don't read this straight up as um, this is a narrative account of what actually happened. And certainly in Judges 5, that is purely poetic, mm-hmm. triumphant literature, so clearly. And and it's fascinating because it does echo the Shirat Hayam, you know, like after surviving the, the Egyptian pursuit, and watching them drown, there's this triumphant narrative of becoming liberated on the other side and experiencing that joyous, very heady taste of freedom, similar to the the song of Devorah. On the other hand, there isn't a lot of neener neener about the Egyptians. Yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was a technical term. And uh, <laughs> but there is so clearly this smug schadenfreude in mm-hmm. Judges 5 that is surprising because I again I can't really think of any other I mean you would know like Ketubim better than I would but I can't think of other places in Ketubim where or I mean Nevi'im uh, where there's um, such an obvious glee taken in this public celebratory fashion about the demise of one's enemies. Oh, there's tons in the book of Joshua. Okay. Where they, so, they put people's heads on pikes and then there's this the ritual shaming of, of these potentates that they defeat. I mean, there's some hesitation. <laughs> Sorry? It's Mardi Gras for the enemies. It's, it's you know, very jo- King Joffrey-esque kind of revelry, uh, you know, in Game of Thrones, where he, you know, he takes their heads and puts them on pikes and the bodies are left and they're devoured by whatever. And Oh, super gruesome. Yeah, Joshua's not for the, uh, it's, not, it's not bedtime reading, you know, material. For sure. So, yeah, that's my analysis. It's pretty interesting material. And if we were to somehow squeeze out some ethical or moral nuggy, of insight for contemporary women. I don't think that this is such a great example that we should emulate. <laughs> Although uh, they're badasses and, and they're surprising and there's so much potential here for creative midrash that I haven't really seen. I kind of looked on Jewish Women's Archive and I should contact Rabbi Jill Hammer. She's like the queen of feminist mm-hmm. creative midrash. But um I haven't seen any, and certainly there's, I think there's probably um, discomfort with these characters amongst contemporary 
midrash writers because it's so anomalous and somewhat disturbing and not fully fleshed out. Well, if we put the the Schadenfreude aside, couldn't you sit you argue that like if we had to sort of look for an analogy in you know the popular culture now that these basically are the two female protagonists of Prozent, you know that like whereas Disney had these um, female characters like Sleeping Beauty and Snow White who basically are like you know passive and they're, they're receding into the background and have no agency at all. Now, for the first time, you have two female protagonists like Ilsa and Anna in, in Frozen, uh, which I don't know if you've, you've probably seen it. Yes. I'm a little embarrassed. I haven't seen You it. haven't seen the feminist <laughs> feel-good Disney movie of the millennium? I know. I'm not a good mom. My daughter loved it and sang it incessantly. But um, from what I understand of the plot, because my partner saw it and she ranted about how it's purportedly feminist, but it's really not. No, no, it's not at all. But okay, great. I'm I'm glad there's confirmation on that. But but the two protagonists are are they sisters? They're sisters. They're friends with one another. They're sisters. So there's relationship there. Right. And, and, and these and, two, and there's no relationship. No, but I mean the, the Unless idea. Unless person, which I love that idea. I might have to write a midrash on it. They're the same person. Um, it's again, it's possible. The thing about Frozen is. That you know, Disney tries to correct itself with each film. Like mm-hmm. if they get if they get slammed for writing a character that's this way, they try to put that character in a different spin in the next movie, um, mm-hmm. and they try to sort of do a movie with female protagonists. You know, the true love's kiss is not from the man; it's to the woman. It's the sisters. Wow! Um, so there's this whole kind of subtext of lesbo weirdness. No, no, I wouldn't okay, go that no. far. It's just, it's just that it's sort of, you know, played on your expectations that like the man would come and save her, and in fact, it wasn't. It was her sister who came and saved her. Got it. Um, but I don't know. I think that uh, you know the the coupling of these two female characters in this story does does some of the, the feminist lifting, heavy lifting, at least for this particular part of the Tanakh, and then never comes back to it ever again. Right. It is. It is the token counter hegemonic feminine intervention. <laughs> and I wish that there was another example that we could use to kind of play off in our analysis, but really there isn't. What are we gonna what are we gonna compare this to? Like Rachel and Leah? I don't think so. No. Um can you think of any other pair? Like Miriam was kind of solo in her prophetic leadership role we don't know who she hung with and they threw her under the bus at first opportunity uh completely so i don't think she's uh up her badass ass kicking you know protagonist where these two are yeah let me ask you a question um who paired the haftorah with the torah portion in general and then was there this deliberate linking of bishalach and these two texts. Oh, absolutely, as- absolutely. The, the the Torah reading is thematically related to the Haftarah reading. That, that, that for many people, that's the only exposure they get to the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim are are um, is through the Haftarah. Yeah, I kind of didn't pay attention to that in seventh grade at Syn- North Suburban Synagogue Bethel Highland Park. So. Yeah, the Haftarah is also kind of an, an also ran, you know, and, and and it's the B-roll, so it's people really don't pay very much attention to it. 
when right. generally it's actually more interesting in many cases than the actual Torah reading itself. Well, if you like political intrigue, the Nevi'im, they are your peeps. Yeah, it's much more interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's like Matt By on crack. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, that's all I've got. I hope that was entertaining. No, thank you so much for your time. And I appreciate sure. you coming on Tanakhcast. And uh, sure. maybe you'll pop in and do some other uh, thing for us at some point in the future. I'm totally happy to do that. And I want to um, give a huge, big ass shout out to Jewish Women's Archive because they've got such great collections of material on any woman in Tanakh you could imagine, no matter how obscure somebody's written about it. So great. Thanks we'll, to get, we'll get a link and we'll put that on the, on the show page. Awesome. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Time for bed. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it is time for bed. I gotta go make sandwiches now for lunch and then go to bed. All right. Thank you so much. Namaste. Namaste. Bong bong. (laughs) If you like what you heard today, tell a friend. Send them an email to say, hey, you should check out Tanakhcast. Or if you could do the social media thing and like Tanakhcast at the show page on Facebook or Google+, that would be appreciated. Or you could leave a kind word in the comments section of thenextjew.com. Or you could write a brief review at the iTunes store. Or find Tanakhcast at Stitcher Smart Radio or SoundCloud and leave a kind word there as well. It's a small thing, really, but it will help me and help other people find Tanakhcast. And I thank you in advance for that. And encourage you to come on back and join us next week-ish for episode 59, when we continue in the Book of Judges with chapters 8 through 11.